This episode is brought to you by Peak Tea. That's P-I-Q-U-E. I have had so much tea in my life. I've been to China. I've lived in China, in Japan. I've done tea tours. I drink a lot of tea. And 10 years plus of physical experimentation and tracking has shown me many things, chief among them that gut health is critical to just about everything. And you'll see where tea is going to tie into this. It affects immune function, weight management, mental performance, emotional health, you name it. I've been drinking fermented pu'er tea specifically pretty much every day for years now. Pu'er tea delivers more polyphenols and probiotics than you can shake a stick at. It's like providing the optimal fertilizer to your microbiome. The problem with good pu'er is that it's hard to source. It's hard to find real pu'er that hasn't been exposed to pesticides and other nasties, which is super common. That's why Peak's fermented pu'er tea crystals have become my daily go-to. It's so simple. They have so many benefits that I'm going to get into, and I first learned about them through my friends Dr. Peter Atia and Kevin Rose. Peak crystals are cold extracted using only wild harvested leaves from 250-year-old tea trees. I often kickstart my mornings with their pu'er green tea, their pu'er black tea, and I alternate between the two. The rich, earthy flavor of the black specifically is amazing. It's very, very, it's like a, a, a delicious barnyard. <laughs> very peaty if you like whiskey and stuff like that. They triple toxin screen all of their products for heavy metals, pesticides, and toxic mold contaminants commonly found in tea. There's also zero prep or brewing required as the crystals dissolve in seconds. So you can just drop it into your hot tea or I also make iced tea and that saves a ton of time and hassle. So... Peak is offering 15% off their Pu'er teas for the very first time, exclusive to you, my listeners. This is a sweet offer. Simply visit peaktea.com slash Tim. That's P-I-Q-U-E-T-E-A dot com forward slash Tim. This promotion is only available to listeners of this podcast. That's peaktea.com forward slash Tim. The discount is automatically applied when you use that URL. You also have a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so your purchase is risk-free. One more time, check it out, Peak. T, that's P-I-Q-U-E-T-E-A dot com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. I've been asked this for years. The answer is invariably AG1 by Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. So you can cover your bases. If you're traveling, if you're just busy, if you're not sure if your meals are where they should be, it covers your bases. I've recommended it since the four-hour body, which was, God, eons ago, 2010, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, you'll be hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense formula on the market. It has a multivitamin, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, and adaptogens. You get the idea. It is very, very comprehensive, and I do my best, of course, to focus on nutrient-dense, proper meals, but sometimes you're busy, sometimes you're traveling, sometimes you just want to make sure that you're getting what you need. AG1 makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. It's also NSF certified for sport, making it safe for competitive athletes, as what's on the label is in the powder. It's the ultimate all-in-one nutritional supplement bundle in one easy scoop. 
Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash Tim. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Tim. Optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're the same time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Well, hello, ladies and germs, boys and girls, damas y caballeros. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I'm going to keep this intro short in terms of my normal preamble. My guest today is Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson is a marine biologist, policy expert, writer, and Brooklyn native. She is co-founder of Urban Ocean Lab, a think tank for coastal cities, and co-creator of the Spotify slash Gimlet podcast, How to Save a Planet on Climate Solutions, which I started listening to this past summer every morning as I drove to the gym, and I became hooked on it for a bunch of reasons that are not immediately obvious, I suppose. She co-edited the best-selling climate anthology, All We Can Save, and co-founded the All We Can Save project. Recently, she co-authored The Blue New Deal, a roadmap for including the ocean in climate policy. Previously, she was executive director of the Weight Institute, developed policy at the EPA and NOAA, and taught as an adjunct professor at New York University. Dr. Johnson earned a BA in environmental science and public policy from Harvard University and a PhD in marine biology from Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She publishes widely, including in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Scientific American. She's on the 2021 Time 100 Next list and was named one of L's 27 women leading the charge to protect our environment. Outside Magazine called her, quote, the climate leader we need, end quote. You can find her online at ayanaelizabeth.com. Com. On Twitter, at Ayana Eliza, that's E-L-I-Z-A. On Instagram, at Ayana Eliza as well. Urban Ocean Lab can be found at urbanoceanlab.org. The All We Can Save project can be found at allwecansave.earth. We'll link to all the social handles for all of these things in the show notes at tim.blog slash podcast. And so now, without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. I learned a lot. I had a great time, laughed even a few times, hopefully make you laugh a few times, and please enjoy. I'm sort of stepping back from doing public stuff for the year. As you know, I sort of like pushed this off mm -hmm. for yep. quite some time, so it's going to be, this will be one of the few things that I do this year, so no pressure, but just fucking nail it on the questions. <laughs> well, let's just dig into <laughs> that first. So why aren't you doing public-facing stuff, and why did you say mm. yes to this? The short answer is I'm writing a book, which means you need, as you know, long stretches of uninterrupted time, ideally, to actually think about really interesting ways to, to frame things, and there's a lot of research involved in, in that project. 
and I'm trying to adhere more and more to this, the philosophy of essentialism, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which yeah. is a process. So that's sort of like the, the professional reason. I'm like focused on this one big project this year. But the personal reason is, you know, that, that sort of cultural perspective that when you have your photograph taken, it steals a part of your soul. That, you know, sort of traditional understanding in, in a bunch of different cultures. And that's how I've felt after the last two years, having like my name and my face and my voice everywhere. I just yeah. feel like I need to gather the pieces back up. And as mm -hmm. an introvert, I'm just done with the world. How long can this <laughs> pandemic last? I would like to go out for a drink at a bar alone and watch yeah. other people and like bring a book. But I, I've been like weirdly fine being isolated. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, so that's the other piece of that. Just wanting to regather my energy and have time to read and think some new thoughts. You know, you get into this rut of like saying the same things over yeah. again, if you don't have time to really process new information and figure out what you think about it all. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like a period of soul retrieval, as some might say, gathering the pieces. I actually was just thinking, as you said, that when you mentioned repeating yourself, thinking of a friend of mine named Josh Waitzkin, who long ago, I was asking for advice around speaking engagements, because it was all new to me. I, mm -hmm. I didn't expect, no one expected the first book to do anything. And suddenly I was kind of foisted into this speaking world. And he described to me why he stopped. And that was he was repeating the same things. And it mm -hmm. started to become calcified. And he started to become inflexible well, he didn't phrase it that way but he recognized I mean, that, he, that he didn't synonymous have the, with calcified so <laughs> yeah yeah i mean he just he didn't have the room or the space to mm -hmm. develop his thinking any further on the topics he was speaking on i think a period of hibernation is good for everyone right yeah and i i'm trying to think of it that way so we'll see and so why why do you say as to this because I have a group text, the consensus opinion of which is always correct, and I asked the group text, and they said I should do this. Oh, wow. All right. <laughs> Thank you, group on the group text. <laughs> yeah, we've got like a finance executive, a journalist, and a Hollywood executive, and me in the group text. So whatever you need, we've got like the answer. So how did this group text, how did this group assemble? I don't know if I have permission to tell the story to the magical group text. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about marine biology. Yeah. If you're open to it. I'm into the ocean. You might be. Mm -hmm. Little known fact, I wanted to be a marine biologist until I was 15 or so. Ooh. I grew up out near Montauk as a townie, way out by the Hamptons, and my mom took me to meet Frank Lundis at one point, who was the inspiration for the crazy shark hunter in Jaws, Quint. And he had the record for the largest great white caught on rod and reel. So my interest started with sharks, quickly then expanded with this textbook called Fishes of the World. And uh -huh. I just, I read that all the way through my younger elementary school years, I would spend my recesses reading this book. So I I've, just turned I've, around to see if I have it on my bookshelf. I do not. I have the diversity of fishes and coral reef fishes textbooks, but not not fishes of the world. Sorry, 
not fishes of the world. So I want to know, and I'm sure you've spoken about this before, but I think for setting the table, it's going to be helpful. How did you first get bitten by the bug? Mm. And was there a specific creature that catalyzed that? I think a lot of kids who have a positive experience with the ocean at a young age totally fall for it head over heels. It's amazing. Whatever you like, it's in there doing something weird, whether it's sharks or for me, it was just the coral reef ecosystem existing to see through the bottom of a glass bottom boat, this whole other thing happening just blew my mind. And I had follow-up questions. <laughs> and so it all started for me when I was five on this, I guess that's the magic age when you're supposed to choose what you want to be when you grow up. And it's a really common dream job, marine biologist. And I guess I'm just like super, super stubborn. And I'm like, no, really. <laughs> um, but my parents took me to Key West, Florida. It was, I think, one of two family vacations we ever went on. We were, you know, a working class family. We weren't jetting around. And I learned to swim that summer and I went on a glass bottom boat ride and I saw a coral reef for the first time and all these like crazy colorful fish and just this whole other thing going on. And then we went to the aquarium and you know, they have these like touch tanks and they had starfish and sea urchins. And I got to hold a sea urchin in the palm of my hand and they have tube feet on the bottom. They have like hundreds of tubes coming out of the bottom of this like hard shelled spiny thing. And th that's how they crawl across the palm of your hand or a reef. And I was just completely blown away by this like purple spine waving foot suction scenario that was happening. These like <laughs> aliens that actually live on our planet. And then looking in a tank and seeing an electric eel do its thing, I was like, mm. what is this called? This is my job now. When did you realize that you had what it took to make it a career path or that <laughs> you, you could find the support to make it a career path? Yeah. Does that make sense? Because yeah. I had the dream, but I just I had no exposure, maybe not enough stubbornness, and then I ended up shifting to other things. I think things, you probably have enough stubbornness. I don't think that was the thing. <laughs> yeah, maybe not enough directional stubbornness. <laughs> like so many people, I had a lot of dream jobs. That was just the first one. After that, I was learning about the civil rights movement when I was, you know, around 10 years old, and I decided I wanted to be very specific dream job. The lawyer that got the next Martin Luther King out of jail. You don't die, but you're super helpful. And I was like, that's that's the thing I can do, right? I can defend the good guys. And then I went backpacking for the first time and was like, oh, park ranger is a job? Like you could get paid to hang out in the forest? Sign me up, obviously best job. And then in college, I was majoring in environmental science and public policy. And I thought, oh, maybe I will do environmental policy or environmental law. And I took environmental law as an undergrad in the law school. And I studied abroad in the Caribbean. I sort of nailed this. I studied abroad in Turks and Caicos. <laughs> it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. It's a super tough job. I mean, I had to memorize the Latin name of every coral reef species, right? We had tests underwater with like a slate route to write down everything they point at. And actually, one of the things they pointed at, I was like, I'm sorry, what are you pointing at? And they were like, over there. And I was like, I don't see it. It's like just in the, in the water. 
I surface and I'm, I'm like, I want to get a good grade on this test, right? Like I've studied so hard, but I can't tell what you're pointing at. And he's like, the thing that I'm not going to swim closer to because it might not be a good idea. And it was a reef shark. So like a uh. reef shark on my quiz that day. But we were studying like not just the ecology, but also the economics of fisheries management and the policy piece. And I realized that it was this really cool puzzle that ocean conservation is actually not just science, it's also economics and policy and culture and communications and protection. It is the park ranger and the lawyer and all that in one. I basically figured out how to have all my dream jobs at once. So I didn't say that I necessarily had a moment when I realized that I could be a marine biologist. I had a moment when I realized I could get a PhD in marine biology and then never do any research again. <laughs> but know enough to be able to understand the papers, to be able to translate that science into policymaking, and to be able to be hopefully useful as a communicator on these topics as well. So you're just nothing but nut. You figured out the Voltron <laughs> of career paths. He's like Luke Skywalker like, like shooting you that. Know. Death Star at the very end. It's like, why choose? And and it's weird. Yeah. Uh, oh. People ask me, well, what do you do? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I like write things and I read things and I talk about stuff and try to get laws changed and whatever the thing is. So to me, it's about projects and collaborations as opposed to research per se, which is a bummer because hanging yeah. out underwater is pretty cool too. I have to ask, just because I've never come across anyone quite like you, and I've interviewed a lot of people, and I will say, just also as some backstory, this past summer was the first time I came across your name, and I mm -hmm. came across your name because I, I like a lot of what Alex does, and I was on Spotify looking at new podcasts, and I saw How to Save a Planet, and began listening and very quickly it became my morning routine oh. where I was going through the back catalog yeah. and I would go to the gym and I would listen to these episodes. And, and you were just lifting so, such heavy weights because you were like, we got to save the planet. I was, I was getting <laughs> huge, jacked, ripped, tan even, which it doesn't, I can't even explain it. Your hair was growing uh, back, a, the whole thing. My hair was growing back. All the good things were happening. It actually had the opposite effect in the sense that I became so engrossed with certain sections. I was like, I can't exercise while I'm <laughs> listening to this. I actually have to be driving or something mm -hmm. else that is uh, a little less, I was going to say less dangerous, although statistically it's probably not true. Yeah. But the I do have question, trouble counting reps if anything else is going on. I understand. <laughs> you know, we, we can't be good we at everything. Multitask and my question for you which had a very strange segue to get here. But what superpowers, if you had to answer this, mm -hmm. what superpowers did you receive, absorb from your parents? Ooh. And from which parent? Okay. I should preface this by saying my parents are incredibly cool. Like, I will never be as cool as my parents. And I think because I sort of acknowledged that very early on, I was like, okay, this is just great. My mom grew up on Long Island in a big Irish Catholic family. Both of my grandparents on that side are from Newfoundland. And she became a high school English teacher. She taught starting in the 60s in the South Bronx, in Bed-Stuy, in like super rough 
neighborhoods just really wanted to make sure those kids got a good education and like didn't manage to get through high school without really learning to read and reading a bunch of books and processing that. And she and my dad met because their best friends were dating. This is sort of like the long version of the story. My dad had just moved to New York from Jamaica. He grew up in Kingston and I like the long versions, by the way. We have nothing but time. <laughs> and so I have this, like, very interesting sort of, like, Irish-Jamaican mashup going. And those two cultures are actually quite similar, as I've learned more about Irish history in the last few years. Just, like, you know, the way that the British screwed over the Irish and the way that that shapes your culture and the way that that influences the music and the dance and the way you find joy amidst it all, Right that sort of like gets passed down in the irreverence and sarcasm. And so that's, that's where the sass comes from. I definitely think I'm like more (laughs) sassy than my parents. Definitely more chatty. (laughs) They're both sort of sparse with conversation. So my mom actually, after I finished college, she was like, when did you learn to like tell a story and make jokes? Because we definitely didn't teach you that. We had the sort of quiet and not so lengthy dinners. I grew up as an only child. So from my dad, who passed away a few years ago, super artistic, was an architect and a potter. And he started what may have been the first black owned architecture firm in New York City and dealt with just like the insane racism of that very insular field. And so there's sort of like a, I'm just going to do this. I know this will be hard, but like, this is the thing. And I'm just going to figure it out. So him with his partners sort of made that work. And I'm sort of embarrassed to say for many years, I thought he was a failure. I didn't understand because he wasn't doing a bunch of cool buildings he could show me. He wasn't making any money really at all. And so I didn't think it worked. And then I ended up hanging out with a bunch of architects a few years ago. And I mentioned, oh, my dad was an architect. And they asked me about him. And they were like, oh, we we know of that firm. He opened doors for so many other black architects. He was the first. Him and his partners were the first. And to be the first is not always glamorous. And people don't usually remember you in most contexts, right? And so now I just, I was always proud of the the sort of meticulous nature of the way that he approached things. He was incredibly proud about everything from his building plans to his handwriting to his fashion sense and really trained my eye as far as design and style and my appreciation for art. But that, that sense that The thing that he instilled in me was that I had to give back. This was the mantra, to whom much is given, much is expected kind of thing. And also just the like, you're going to have to work twice as hard to get half as much because you're not white. And I was like, damn it. (laughs) Those are more like the lessons than the superpowers, perhaps. But I guess, you know, on the superpower side, it's just caring about how things look. I think within the climate and environmental movement, people don't put enough often energy into design, right? For so many years, it was just like this sort of like unappealing, crunchy mess. You weren't like, oh, that's where all the cool kids are. And so I do think about aesthetics in my work 
in a very deep way because of my dad, which is not a superpower in other fields, but might be (laughs) more so here. And my mom is just a super deep researcher. So she ended up developing all these new curriculums for her classes to include writers, authors of color, Black writers, Asian writers, Native American writers. And so she was reading all these books. She was buying them all with her own money, literally taking them in shopping carts to school at the beginning and end of every semester, handing them out to the kids and just finding ways to help people have a greater understanding of the world, using literature as a way to teach history, as a way to teach cultural competency, as a way to teach about morality and justice. And so she's just, you know, a lifelong consummate teacher. And I think there's there's a superpower in the curiosity that she still every day wakes up and wants to understand more in more nuance how the world works. I don't think I have it as strongly as she does. I'm like, oh my God, the deluge of information. Like it's too much. I would like to know less sometimes, but I think I would say her sort of endurance, intellectual endurance and her real desire to have other people understand the important things that she learns. I had no idea what I was going to say. I'm not sure if I had more time to think about it, if I would say the same thing. Well, that's... uh... That's kind of the goal with with the questions that you haven't heard before yeah. is that you don't have a whole lot of time. Where did you get the storytelling? If you had to guess, certainly, I mean, having spent a, a mm. decent amount of time in Ireland, I mean, there's a an incredible tradition. Maybe there is something in your code, so to speak, but is there another explanation or another source or inspiration? There is, and it's that two of my cousins on my mom's side started an improv comedy group when they were like maybe in college or so in L.A., and they were like my idols. Stephen Connell, who's now a professional poet, actor, writer, and Joseph Pisani. And they would just put on these like incredible shows in the driveway at our family's annual clam bake and call up volunteers and stuff. And just watching the way their minds worked in connecting the dots and making everyone laugh and making it participatory. And no one ever got made fun of in a cruel way, ever. It was just we're all in this sort of absurdity creation together. And that was all our dinner table conversations were like telling crazy, listening to them tell crazy stories. So I never aspired to be an actor. And as you know, I'm not really interested in being on video even at all. (laughs) So I think for me, it was just, I really looked up to them and I was just so impressed with what they could pull out of thin air and how they could turn something that seemed so mundane into the most delightful and fascinating tale. Let's go back to scuba diving for a second. And the reason I bring it up is... Because breathing underwater is cool. (laughs) Because breathing underwater is (laughs) fucking rad, point one. But point two is that I've seen transformations in people mm. where they they have this binary switch of sorts where they go from being vaguely interested in marine biology or mm-hmm. the ocean and they have their first experience with either snorkeling or scuba in a vibrant environment and something just switches and the way they relate to life underwater and the ocean itself changes my question for you is... Are you speaking from experience? 
I am speaking from experience. Mm-hmm. So, so scuba diving and snorkeling are are two of my favorite experiences and activities in the world. And when people talk about colonizing Mars or they talk about psychedelic experiences and they're like, oh, I'm probably never going to have either of those. I'm, I just say, go snorkeling or scuba mm. diving. Do not trample all the coral. Don't touch anything. Don't touch <laughs> anything. But for me, it was a, these were life-changing experiences. And I'm wondering if there is any equivalent you have seen within discussions around climate or the Mm. subject matter of climate. Like, is there some experience that people can have that you have seen or heard of that flips a switch and there's a before and an after? Not in a positive way like that. What you've described is this like awe and delight that you can experience when you're immersed in this underwater world. The perspective that you gain when you realize that there's a whole bunch of stuff that is not about humans and we're not even supposed to be there. And the way that those marine ecosystems, you can like see the food web in front of you. You can see who's eating who and like how it's all connected in this really dynamic and immediate way. And the thing with climate is it's this sort of slow moving disaster in a sense. I mean, it's moving much more quickly than people had ever thought that it would. Every time we read a new report, it's like, oh, it's actually worse and faster. You know, it's never like, no big deal, just kidding. And so the thing that I've seen flip the switch is natural disasters, which is a term I don't use anymore. I I call them like just disasters or extreme weather events or something like that, because they're not natural anymore. This is not nature as it was intended to be. And so people who experience wildfires or hurricanes and other sorts of disasters, I think, often have this kind of like, oh, fuck, I'm not safe from this. You're not safe from this. For so long, it felt like the media was portraying climate change, something that would affect like poor, probably brown people in some faraway island. And so Americans were, if you read the news, sort of insulated from thinking that this would ever really come home to roost for us. And in the last few years, I think it's become clear that we're not safe. And wealthier people are actively working on ways to protect themselves and their families from the impacts of the climate crisis. But even they will not be able to hide from that because they still need to get their food from somewhere and their medical treatment from somewhere. And we are all connected. So I don't know. I wish I had a more fun answer, but I think the only equivalent that I can think of is, you know, that's more similar to experiencing marine life is the understanding that species are going extinct because of this too. Like these magnificent things that have been on the planet for millennia have no place to live anymore right if you think about temperature range and a mountain and you think okay well they they can't sustain temperatures over a certain amount so species are moving up and up and up the mountain but when you get to the top of the mountain there's no there's no foliage there's no you're above the the tree line the trees haven't grown there yet there's no soil there and there's nowhere else to go there's no further up to go to get away from the heat 
And the same with coral reefs. Corals can't get up and move and there's nowhere nowhere to go. And so we have fish who are literally migrating towards the poles to try to stay cool. And all of these changes are so dramatic and happening right before our eyes in our lifetimes. This is not something that's playing out over generations. This is something that's playing out over years. Is really shocking. And so for people who have a specific love of nature over time, whether it's as a bird watcher and noticing what birds are missing or that the birds are coming at very different times, or if you're a gardener and realize that the first frost comes much later and springtime is changing to change when you plant things. For people who have a more day-to-day intimate relationship with any sort of um, species or ecosystem, I think there's sort of a persistent low-level heartache about going through the world and seeing the things that you care about be so threatened and, and these things start to crumble. What I would love to do as a thought exercise <laughs> okay, is to play with the idea of certain experiences or struggling to find the I right totally word. I totally failed to tell you why my parents are the coolest. I mean, my parents were oh, like yes. the proto hipsters. So my dad was living in Fort Greene, Brooklyn when it was like super rough. And he was a student at Pratt, this like art architecture school. And my mom was living in Harlem and they would ride their bicycles and like meet in Central Park and like hang out. And they would like play the flute together and like make homemade pickles. And they had like a whole vegetable garden in the back of the brownstone they they got in Fort Greene back when brownstones were like 30-something thousand dollars. And like they had like the whole scenario sorted. And then I came along and was just like sort of, I ruined everything. I ruined all their activities. <laughs> <laughs> wow, they were hipsters before it was cool. I know. That's amazing. It was very cool. So we had like, you know, they were playing tennis while wearing white bell bottoms. I mean, like the whole thing was impeccable. And here I am just trying to, you know, not let them down. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Helium 10. Helium 10 is an all-in-one software suite designed to help entrepreneurs launch, manage, and scale profitable e-commerce businesses on Amazon as well as on walmart.com. So whether you're an entrepreneur who wants to start a business on your own terms or you want to scale your existing e-commerce operations, Helium 10 can help. They process more than 2 billion data points daily. That's a lot of data. Have a robust 450 plus million ASIN database and provide at-a-glance analytics like seasonal trends for products, profit estimates, and more. I did a bunch of vetting on these guys with help from all of you, actually, looking for recommendations, how much you would recommend them. And I've been very impressed with the feedback I've seen on social media from their community of 1 million plus users. So they cleared the hurdle and here they are. You'll be able to tap into Amazon's existing customer base, product demand, and shipping infrastructure to launch your business. And just as a reminder, Amazon will handle all shipping and returns for you. Join more than 1 million Helium 10 users worldwide by signing up for a free account at helium10.com slash Tim. That is helium10.com slash Tim. Sign up for free at helium10.com slash Tim. 
Let's come back to your last answer prior to the pickles and the mm-hmm. flute. The flute. Pickles I want to. I want to jump on the flute. Of pottery that my father made himself. Oh my god! <laughs> Just gets we better. We have like a whole pottery studio and a kiln and a wheel in the basement of our house. Yeah, and a dark room. The whole shebang. So if we look at for a second, not as as fun to discuss, but for lack of a better way to describe it, say scaring people into action versus or in combination with inspiring people into action. Mm -hmm. I'd love to explore this a little bit because I think both obviously can work. But if I think about, for instance, some of the things that I've been involved with, whether that's really interested in in trophic cascade, both as it relates huh. to say sharks Didn't see that one and coming. also yeah, gray wolves. So I've been involved with a number of. Do you want to define human... trophic cascade for your listeners? Oh, I think you're going to be better at doing that. <laughs> um, so so we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there in a second. We'll get there in a second, and I want you to do it because I will screw it up. And actually, one of the oh god, I'm going to take us all over the place. Okay, before we get any further. Well, actually, let me just finish my my little quick piece. This is to say that the shark component and my introduction to Trophic Cascade came about because of a shark tagging trip that I went on. And then on the on the wolf side, there was a similar experience that, as you mentioned, can and does happen to people, made me very interested in other examples of Trophic Cascade and also the sort of plight of animals that become political targets or political symbols. And they were positive experiences, certainly with a lot of terrible stories in the ether around both of them. But ultimately, it was kind of awe and wonder that that brought me into both mm-hmm. of those. And similarly, I've seen, so I've been very heavily involved with science related to psychedelic compounds at Johns Hopkins and other places. And what has happened in the last handful of years are uh, many people I never would have suspected have become involved with conservation in South America through great nonprofits like the Amazon Conservation Team and others. But it began with firsthand experience with, say, some of these displaced and uh, indigenous groups in South America. Do you think there are other ways to introduce people to the ecosystem that includes climate change to make them beneficial, proactive participants that include sort of awe and wonder in in ways that I haven't described? It's a very long-winded question, but I've never asked it before. Uh, I'm with you. I'm with you. I I think like fear and anxiety and really un- pleasant news is not terribly motivating for most people. It is for some. For me, I actually don't that often think about the details of how bad the scientific projections are and exactly what's happening to ecosystems. I focus almost entirely on solutions. My perspective is like, it's as bad as we thought and actually worse. It's all happening fast. And then I immediately pivot to what are we going to do about it? Like, what can I do to help? And I think the thing that's really interesting to me and actually super inspiring is that we basically have all the solutions we need. We know how to transition to 100% renewable energy. We know how to farm in regenerative ways that restore carbon to the soil instead of emitting it, right? We know how to 
transform public transit in cities. We know how to compost food. We already know how to do all this stuff. We know how to make buildings more efficient. We know how to improve manufacturing processes. It's just a matter of how fast we're going to do this and whether people will get out of their own ways and be able to forsake the self-interest, whether that's money or power, and just get this shit done. And to me, that is the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. I'm like, how are we going to get this shit done? Because we can, like, because it is a possibility, because we have this wide range of possible futures still available to us. And I want to be part of making sure we get the best one. And so the things that I get excited about that I think many people could and will get more excited about as media starts to shift from problem to solutions is that coastal ecosystems like wetlands and mangroves um, can absorb five times more carbon than a forest on land. Let's protect and restore those. Let's think about farming oysters and seaweed in the ocean that absorbs a lot of carbon and is like a super low footprint source of food. I don't know, you probably have a, a take on whether those are good things to eat, but they're super sustainable. I'll tell you that part. Many Americans are iodine deficient. <laughs> We're going to come back to that. We're coming back to that. And, you know, some people get really excited about the technology, figuring out how we're going to go from these like clunky solar panels to solar panels that are just like regular roof tiles or how we're going to sort of shift our food systems to accommodate for these things. What is the role of technology? What is the role of culture? What is the role of politics? Some people just like love getting out of bed in the morning and harassing politicians into doing better on climate policy. And like, I'm glad that that, that floats your boat. And so I think it can be very exciting to consider how to put your interests, passions, superpowers to work towards specific climate solutions. And we don't have to do all of them. Like everyone just has to do something. And the solutions are really cool. Like offshore wind turbines powering the 40% of Americans who live in coastal counties. That would be great. Let's get it going. And so I guess if you think only about the problem, then of course... It's a bummer. And I sort of fell into that trap when you asked me the question in its previous framing. But when you think about the solutions, there's like no limit to the sources of inspiration and, and places to look and things you'd be like, ooh, I want that. I want to help with that. I want to support that. I want to like fund that. I want to innovate the 2.0 version of that. All right. We're going to play another game, a guessing game. Okay. So I mentioned that I listened to many, many episodes. Which was your favorite? Of, Which was your least favorite? We're going to get to both of those. Okay. So I have shared a few episodes with my audience. That's nice. Through my newsletter, which goes out to a few million people. And no big deal. No big <laughs> deal. But the it's just as a side note, I mean, it's the, if you want to push to direct action having direct contact with your subscribers is very helpful to anyone out there who's determining where they should focus on growing an audience. The question I have for you is which episodes do you think I chose? Can you, can you possibly guess? For what best and worst favorite and least? Let's go with the ones I shared. So I wouldn't oh, have shared. Which I, did I wouldn't you have shared share? The, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of know your vibe, but like not really. Um, I'll give you a, just a helpful tip is that my audience spans the political spectrum. So uh, I, well, you just sort of it, gave it away. <laughs> okay. Did I? Well, let, tell me, tell well, me. Well, 
What I was going to say before you gave me this hint was the ones on kelp are actually really interesting because they have this like sort of like health and wellness and food angle and like super creative entrepreneurship piece. So I thought you might have been and they're kind of fun, too. So I thought you might have shared that, but it's a two parter. And so that's like a little less shareable. That is an excellent guess, and you are correct. Yes. And this care. So, what is this guy's name? Because the story Brent about Smith, him, the fisherman turned ocean living, farmer, live, living in a tent on the side of a golf course selling LSD to his fellow students. <laughs> this is the guy, this right? This is the That's the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, so and apparently, I just that. getting late, left, right, and center. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> He's, uh, so, so the, the the entire thing as a story was yeah. and uh, from the perspective of storytelling was so riveting that even if someone said I don't buy climate change it's still something they would listen to yeah right and that's why I chose that was the first episode that I shared actually and I just thought from a human interest perspective from a solutions perspective from a capitalist perspective mm-hmm. even though that's a dirty word in some circles from an enlightened self-interest perspective, maybe we could say, mm-hmm. there are so many entry points on this episode. And it's funny also, it's right? Funny. It's the humor. And that's something I really appreciated about, and still do, but appreciated about how you engaged with the podcast. And part of why I kept listening to it was using humor when possible, mm-hmm. because this shit can be so dark. Mm-hmm. But that that is the first episode that I shared. I'm so, so that's, glad. That's a very good episode. I have a crush on seaweed and Brent Smith, the fisherman who's now an ocean farmer, is a wonderful human being. And I love his organization, Green Wave, which is training people to become ocean farmers and, you know, doing all this great work. It I'm so enamored with the whole thing that I joined their board and I'm like saying no to everyone constantly. <laughs> so that's how yeah. big a fan I am of that work. So it was really great to have him on the show. Do you recall the name of the episode or how people would find that episode? Because it's just an incredible story with very colorful characters yeah. <laughs> involved. Uh, how, what, what should people Google if they want to find that episode? Kelp farming for the climate. Yep. So kelp farming for the climate. What I did in my newsletter is I renamed the link. So, uh-huh, I, so that it wasn't for the climate. That's right. Uh-huh. Because the the episode will get there. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't want to What did you name I it? I didn't want That is a great question. Let me see if I can find it. This might take a minute. So the other episode I thought once you gave me that hot tip was that you chose the one where we discussed how to have conversations about climate change with climate science deniers. The trying to talk to family about climate change question mark here's how episode. Uh, I actually I did not share that one, but I I've not heard that episode uh, either. It's so a, that, that that would actually it's be. a a former Republican congressman and his son talking about how their perspectives on climate have evolved and how the son and mm. his sisters played a big role in shifting his father's perspective and how how they're working uh. on with Republicans on trying to get climate policy and um, sort of awareness passed, because it doesn't need to be a partisan issue. Like, we can all care about maintaining a habitable planet. Mm-hmm. So 
So here's here's what I put in my newsletter. So the, the newsletter is called Five Bullet Friday, and it's just the five kind of coolest, most interesting things I've come across or experimented with that week. And this is podcast episode I'm listening to, From Cod Fishing to Kelp Farming. I put in parentheses my title, and then with Dr. Ayanna ah. Elizabeth Johnson and Alex Bloomberg. And here's what I wrote. For many reasons, I'm considering investing heavily in aquaculture, so I've been doing a deep dive, pun intended, into the subject. And then we can deconstruct why I wrote it this way. This episode is incredibly smart, incredibly helpful, and incredibly hilarious. I didn't expect the characters involved and kept bursting out laughing at the gym this morning. I looked like a crazy person, but kept on listening. Whether you want an investing advantage or simply great stories, this episode is really worth the time. And if you'd like to learn storytelling and podcasting tips from one of the co-hosts, Alex Bloomberg, you can find my 2015 interview with him here. So the reason I positioned it this way and the reason I renamed the title is because I wanted as as large a funnel at the top mm-hmm of people who would click play on this episode as possible. Sure, so that's, that's great. why I positioned it the way that I did. I'm glad you like our corny jokes. <laughs> I say the corny those jokes, were yeah, mostly are, are unscripted. Great. And I'm very surprised that so many of them made the cut. <laughs> are you sure you I was <laughs> astonished that, uh, what, was the, what was the kelp farmer's name again? Bren Smith. Bren with no T, B-R-E-N. B-R-E-N. Okay. So I was surprised you kept in everything he said related to the, the tent, which you alluded to. I mean, he was like, yeah, if you really want to get a lot of ass in college, gold. turns out live it, living in a tent <laughs> by the golf course is the way to do it. Yeah. It was, it was just, it was, I, it was I could not have predicted uh, that that would be the way, but you know. Okay. What do you own. think my, what do you think my least favorite episodes might be. Oh, plural. And you went plural I, 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 on least favorite. Well, Cute. well, I want to, I want to, <laughs> but I want to, I'm going to provide a lens though, okay. and this is not going to be surprising. Not least favorite to personally listen to, least but favorite to those, share. I w- those least likely to share. Least likely to share. Um, Black Lives Matter and the climate. <laughs> you have I mean, to really double it, retitle that one. Yeah. You're close, but it's it's not exactly that. It's any episode that had a mixture of many causes or multiple causes. Oh. Not because they don't matter, not because they aren't important, but because I felt like it was, if I'm trying to use a Trojan horse approach to get the funnel to be as large as possible for clicking, I didn't want in the beginning, later things can, can be different, but I, I wanted to provide sort of single points of action, if that makes any sense. So not the one titled environmentalist drag queen Patagonia says the outdoors is for everyone. That's right. Not that's the right, one that says right. we can't solve the climate crisis without gender equality. We'll prove it to you. So if there were episodes that laid out in the call to action, sort of a clear sequence or in the narrative, uh-huh. a clear sequence, then I would be open to sharing it. If it felt to me like, and hopefully this doesn't come across terribly, but <laughs> if I felt like for the listener who is not, who feels like the climate acting in some proactive way with respect to climate change is futile, if that's how they're coming into it, like, mm-hmm. I don't think there's really anything I can do. Mm-hmm. If they're already demoralized about that, if I felt like an episode might kind of look like the back of a car in like Berkeley, California with multiple... <laughs> bumper stickers that they wouldn't know how to put in any order or make any sense of, and therefore they would just opt out, then I would be less inclined to share it. Doesn't mean they're not important episodes. Which was your favorite episode that you 
didn't share because of that reason. I'll give an example of one I liked, but then also had some issues with. I thought the episode related to, and you're going to have more of the specifics here, but the, I guess you would say activists within Amazon. Uh I thought that was a really interesting episode that had a couple of points in the dialogue that veered into a number of different areas that made it hard for me to be totally sympathetic to some of the protagonists Mm -hmm. in the episode. But I did find that very interesting from the perspective of the incredible leverage you can get if you are able to successfully catalyze action within enormous companies, especially those with large carbon footprints. Side note, did British Petroleum actually create the term carbon footprint? They definitely popularized it and like trade upon it and try to make it seem like this whole thing is our fault. I'm not yeah. sure if they actually yeah. coined the term. Or sh- yeah, but, but shifting, creating online calculators to sort of shift the onus to the individual. It's it's, uh, so it's, it's brilliant totally, and like disgusting. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the like the best of the worst sort of words that work. Frank Luntz type of, you know, death tax. Yeah, we need need more of of these, like, linguistic jujitsu happening on the side of climate solutions, please. And, you know, I noticed that with uh, some of your sponsors on the show also, and I was like, oh, that's quite clever. I think it was... I don't even know uh, who they were. (laughs) I don't... Well, there was... There was, I want to say, and again, God, I, I, this is really going you know, faulty, memory, here. Fa- faulty memory at work, but I think it was, I want to say Fidelity or some investment mm. firm that offered the ability to invest in, for lack of a better term, climate-friendly or yeah. uh, climate-solution-focused I've not vetted, do not personally endorse. <laughs> no, no, right. But I noticed, I noticed that instead of saying, they said the green transition, and I was like, mm-hmm. that's an interesting way of phrasing mm-hmm. it. That's a very interesting way of phrasing it, because the language matters. The word I've been using a lot is transformation, because that's, I feel like, the most embraceable word I can think of that indicates just how much things have to change. We're not talking about tweaking little things, tweaks in policy, tweaks in behavior, tweaks in corporate practices. We're talking about transforming our energy system, food system, transportation, manufacturing buildings, all of it. And when you think about the climate challenge in those terms, There is a place for everybody in working towards these solutions, in figuring out this green transition or this transformation, because no matter where you work, your company needs to be a part of this. No matter where you live, your community needs to be prepared for this. No matter what skills you have, believe me, they are necessary. And so I think of that as that the word transformation both is appropriate to the scale of what needs to happen, but also a bit more welcoming because it implies that we can still sort of shape the future that we want, which is true. Let's talk about transformation and large scale, broad spectrum transformation, because the the scale of that, I can imagine intimidating a lot of people and them saying, you know what, I'm going to be a drop in the ocean, 
pun intended. And it's just not going to, what am I going to do? Really? Like, am I going to replace my straws and make a difference? I, I don't think I can do anything. For, for those people, and I know you've spoken about this and you've spoken about it in the podcast as mm-hmm. well, but how do you suggest people think about where they might fit in? And the Venn diagram mm-hmm. comes to mind. Yeah. But what do you recommend to people who are saying, you know, I would love to do something. Realistically, I don't, I can't make this my full-time job. Like mm-hmm. what would you have me do? How would you suggest I even think about it? I would say don't think about it as a side thing. Think about how this is part of your life already. And so I think often people think I want to help on some environment thing. They're like, do I go volunteer for a nonprofit? Do I quit my job and like go do this entirely other thing? When the answer is often change your company, change your sports team, change your church, figure out how to way to put have the things you're already a part of, where you already have influence and leverage, change those things as opposed to trying to like, I don't know, do some entirely new thing that you have no network in or, or power in. This idea of power mapping, of figuring out where you actually have the ability to make change, I think is a really important step. And this sort of, I think, in many ways, the environmental movement had like a real problem initially because it was asking everyone to do the same thing. We still fall into this trap, right? Like everybody spread the word, everybody march, everyone donate, everyone vote. And we should do all those things, of course. But if you and I were both doing the same exact thing to contribute to climate solutions, that would be a total waste of both of our time, right? Like we should do the things we're good at. And so the way that I think about it, and we sort of went into this sort of debate between individual behavior change where it does all add up. If we all change our diets, if we all change our transportation, if we all change our electricity, that does add up to something. But the recounting on individuals to change things is that need whole systems to change. I don't get to choose where my electricity comes from when I turn on my lights in this apartment building per se. So we need to make the system make other things possible in terms of energy, for example. So we did this whole episode called Is Your Carbon Footprint BS? Talking about this debate between... That was a good episode. I hoped you would like that one. This debate between two siblings where one was like individual actions matter and the other one was like, no, only this big level systems change stuff matters. And the answer that we landed on is that your individual actions matter in so much as they contribute to larger scale change. And the way that I think about everyone finding their sort of like bespoke role in climate solutions is this Venn diagram of just three circles. And the first one is, what are you good at? What superpowers, what skills are you bringing to the table? Your network, your resources, what you got? And then the next circle would be, what part of this transformation do you want to work on, right? Are you really excited about seaweed? Are you really excited about offshore wind farms? Are you really excited about bike lanes or composting or political change or cultural shifts? Like whatever is the piece, like there are so many pieces to this puzzle and no one can do them all. So just which ones are you picking? And then the third circle is what brings you joy? So what gets you out of bed in the morning? Because so often people assume that this work has to be miserable and some sort of slog. But this is the work of our lifetimes. And it's like this whole transformation. So if we could pick between doing anything and transforming any sector, like pick something that that you can keep working on for a while that, that will energize you. 
and you want to bring other people in. And so finding our way to the epicenter, each of us, of our personal version of that Venn diagram can be really powerful. So for example, I, as a marine biologist and a kid who grew up in Brooklyn, a coastal city and a policy nerd who loves thinking about design, I co-founded a think tank for the future of coastal cities. Cause I was like, this is what I'm good about and know about and care about and excited about. So let's just mash all that up together and see like how we can help coastal cities change their policies in order to adapt to the climate changes that are coming. And my friend Boris was like, well, I'm, should we just go to more marches? I brought him to a climate protest and he was like, do we just do this again next week? <laughs> I was like, no, go change your company. Like you're an executive at Betterment. And nine months later, he launched their sustainable investing fund, which is much more power. I don't care if he ever goes to a march again, because that doesn't matter because he has this like much greater ability to make change where he already is. So what are you going to do, Tim? Tell us about your Venn diagram. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, I will answer that. The, <laughs> the, the energize you part, I just want to underscore because I think it is so, totally. so, so, so important. And much like the in the podcast world, there's like this elephant graveyard of three episode podcasts because people choose something at the outset that is too complex, not interesting enough to them, not energizing, and then they quit, mm -hmm. right? So I really think that energized piece is is huge. Yeah. And, and joy, like we can find joy yeah. in our work, especially if it's like volunteer work, like pick a fun one. Yeah. So for me, Part of the reason I've been looking forward to this conversation, well, there are many reasons I've been looking forward to this conversation, including the SAS. Mostly because I played hard to the, get. <laughs> mostly because she played hard to get. This is very true. Very, very, very true. Uh, it's a, <laughs> so, I don't do it in dating, uh, but apparently I do it with podcast invites. <laughs> you know, and it works and it works. So for me, if I'm uh, getting all vulnerable and stuff, Bring it on. the last two years have been very difficult for me from the perspective of existential distress and just disappointment in humanity in general. That's why when people are like, oh, what are you doing for philanthropy? I'm like, I'm not sure that's the right word because like Phil, anthro, like anthropology, I don't actually like humans that much. Uh, and Humans are consistently it, disappointing, aren't they? Yeah. And so the last two years, I've just been like, we're fucked. I just, I, I don't see how we write this shit. But like, how fucked do you want to be? Well, hold on, hold on. so it's like in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if like if COVID, this clear and present mm -hmm. danger that is literally killing people right in front of us, can't get political leaders to coordinate or cooperate, how are we going to handle? this like iceberg that we're heading towards that is, you know, on the range of possibly decades away. And I, I, I understand it's not a, a switch that gets flipped, but yeah, uh, it's here. Yeah, it's here. And I was just like, God, you know, maybe I should just, uh, you know, pick up pottery, uh, take some watercolor classes and just enjoy it make while it lasts. Pickles. Cause I think we're make some pickles. And what I think got me, well, I wasn't totally on the bench, right? I was listening to things like your podcast. I was re I've been reading books. I've read Drawdown. I would actually love your thoughts on that because they, they rank, and I don't know if their algorithm or their method is 
scientifically credible. I just don't know, but it's the book was good. given to me. It's very good. And their okay. new version, the Drawdown Review, available for free online, I can share the link with you, is wonderful. Yeah. And like the graphic design makes everything super clear. Okay. I'll tie this in then because I went through Drawdown. I paid particular attention to the back and the appendices. And I looked at where my strengths and enthusiasm might overlap. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I see that refrigerants is really, really high. <laughs> yeah. But I just, I don't know anything about refrigerants. Uh -huh. It doesn't excite me. I don't have any particular knowledge or network related to refrigerants. But there were some where I was like, okay, I could actually see becoming involved in, say, aquaculture. Uh -huh. And spoke to a number of people, I won't mention by name, but who are very, very, some of the smartest technologists in the world who I know, right? And they they mentioned that they thought some of the most promising interventions were ocean-based and talked about different organizations and companies, mm -hmm. you know, Climeworks and carbon removal, things like Charm Industrial, which I find super, super, super interesting. And a name that we chatted about before we started recording, Chris Saka also got me mm -hmm. very interested in looking at sort of solutions-focused, obviously market-driven technologies that might play a role. And the reason that got me excited is not because I'm a techno-optimist who's like, we can fuck up everything because, you know, there'll be this like uh, deus ex machina, like God out of the sky who will save us with some new technology. I don't really endorse that kind of approach, but the idea that you could align just the most cold-blooded capitalist animal to do the right thing in self-interest for the collective, does that make sense? Was very exciting. There's a lot of money to be made in green energy, yeah. In, yeah. in food system shifts, in transportation, huge. all of it. Yeah. 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 Huge. And so that got me very excited. And you might laugh at me, but another thing that got me off the bench was the recent breakthroughs in fusion technologies. And I know the joke is like fusion's always 30 years mm -hmm. away, but looking at it more closely, I was like, you know what, man, there are so many ways this, this might not work and so many challenges, but if it does, this could be extremely, extremely, I mean, exponentially, more effective than many of these these other technologies that are that are being brought to bear on the problem. Not to say that's the only option, right? Because I think that's a hail mary, or some people view it as a hail mary. But it was it was fusion that got me really excited. And you know, I'm looking at a text from a friend of mine. He's saying, you know, advanced geothermal, ocean wind looked very promising. So you mentioned the uh, I'm not sure the phrasing you used, but the the ocean wind mm -hmm. I think is yeah, very offshore interesting. wind farms, mm -hmm. offshore wind and. These are also places where, so I'll give you just a quick example that maps for me in my mind. So I've spent many years now and thousands of hours on psychedelic science and medicine and therapeutics and so on. I've, I made a decision very early on not to invest in any for-profit companies because I wanted to preserve my ability to kind of critique and comment on the space and to be viewed as unbiased. So that was my decision, but I did a lot of fundraising and I've raised Certainly, I'd be in the top, I'd say, th three people who've raised money in the space. But as soon as a few for-profit companies began to show promise and went public, um, for better and for worse, a lot of the people who were donating to the nonprofits completely abandoned it mm -hmm. and went to for-profit. Mm -hmm. And I think there are issues with that related to IP and otherwise. But I do think that 
just based on the number of limited partners, meaning investors and so on, who have started to plow money into some of these technologies we're talking about, that got me excited because you could finally, in my mind, sort of align in an exciting way individual self-interest, even if they don't give a shit about the environment, which preferably they would, but even if they don't, with sort of collective betterment. So what am I going to do? I'm going to interview people like you. I'm going to (laughs) have uh, entrepreneurs on the podcast who are, and I want to make this really clear, putting climate aside, putting all of that aside, really incredible thinkers and entrepreneurs and builders. Mm-hmm. at the end of the day like they they can stand on their own two feet from that perspective so their story is interesting much like bren even if you take sort of climate out of it or any politics out of it and i'll be investing right like i'm investing i've done a lot of early stage investing and i've started in the last 6 to 12 months especially putting i would say probably at this point like the majority of my investing dollars into some of these startups i love it so that's what I'm going to do. And, you know, we'll see where it goes. But I, I'm I into feel, it. I, I think the it. highlighting people doing the work is interesting because in many cases, it's so surprising because people don't think about the full spectrum of ways you can be a part of the solution. So showing like, oh, no, you can be like a tycoon and do this. You can be a tech nerd and do this. You can be a technologist and do this. You can be a health nut and do this. Like whatever is your thing, we need you. And I think that's really exciting. That's actually the same approach that we took with the anthology that I co-edited, All We Can Save, which is Mm. this collection of 40 or so essays by women leading on climate work. And to see side by side an essay by a woman who led the Beyond Coal campaign at the Sierra Club, which has effectively shut down over 300 coal-fired power plants in the U.S. in the last decade. This is not peanuts. This is the transformation, right? To that side-by-side with a supermodel writing about how the fashion industry is part of the problem, and an artist writing about how she's part of the solution, and a landscape architect talking about how we're going to protect coastal cities by replanting more oysters and thinking about how we design our coastlines differently, right? Having a farmer tell the stories of how they've shifted their practices and are training the next generation. Generation. All of these are super interesting. And like, I haven't said climate once, right? Like, it's about yeah. this like cool work that people are doing that is contributing to the changes that we need to see. And honestly, it's stuff that would need to happen even if climate change weren't a problem. Because burning coal is really bad for our health and it's bad for the planet, even if it didn't change the climate. Because fast fashion is really dangerous for for people and the planet in other ways, it's toxic and bad for workers, right? Like it's not a good thing anyway. Eating industrial food full of pesticides is not good for us anyway, and it's not good for the planet or the climate. And so I think you're right that for so many of the solutions that we have, they are better jobs. They result in cleaner water, cleaner air. Things are just more beautiful and green and we can still make plenty of money It's just a better world full stop on all these different levels. And so you can actually, in many cases, take climate out of the equation because fossil fuels are bad for our health, (laughs) right? They are so bad for maternal health, right? It is really dangerous for babies to be exposed to all these toxins. We know that there's like associated with like birth weight and birth defects and all of these other problems 
not to mention what's happening in coal mining communities with public health and black lung and all of these things and the pollution of the waterways and the loss of ecosystems. So I think, yeah, sure. If you want to do this for another reason besides climate, that's fine with me. We need to get it done. (laughs) Not to mention fertility overall. It's just terrifying to see Yeah, with, uh, I'm not sure what you would call them, microplastics and so on. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, terrifying. People people should watch uh, Children of Men as a <laughs> preview. Ooh, I haven't seen that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's brutal. It's worth checking out. It's pretty dystopian, but it's not un, It's not improbable. Either. Have you seen the new um, film, Don't Look Up? No. What's that? Adam McKay directed it, this new film. He directed like... I don't know, uh, Vice, and he worked on Saturday Night Live. And he's a he's a comedy writer, and it stars Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence, um, yep. and all these other. It's star-studded Meryl Streep and Tyler Perry and all these folks, and it's basically like a satire, a parable where this comet is coming to hit the Earth, and and we sort of ignore it, and there's this whole campaign that mm. says, "Don't look up." You know, and like Meryl Streep plays the president and she's more worried about getting votes than about like deflecting this comet from like ruining all life on Earth. And some technologist is like, wait, we could just mine the comet. Like, let's not deflect it. And all of this stuff. Right. It is this like anxiety inducing for anyone who's been trying to communicate on climate for years. Piece of cinema. And the point was to spark more conversation on climate and do it in a way that uses humor. So when you said you appreciated How to Save a Planet, which, you know, the podcast I co-created, because it was funny, at least to you, I really appreciated that because I think we need more climate media that is deploying humor. Because humor, quantitatively, we know, is a way to, like, have people open their minds to new ideas, right? When you're laughing, you're not fighting, you're you're able to listen. It helps you let your guard down. It helps you like be in community with people in a different way. And so I actually just released an op-ed today, co-authored with the director. The title is "Why Our Secret Weapon Against the Climate Crisis Could Be Humor." Oh, amazing! So I'll read that. Yeah, in the Guardian. Uh, we will link to that in the show notes as well. So let me uh, just kind of brain vomit on you for a second, <laughs> that and then gross. I'd love to. <laughs> And then I'd love to love to get your your perspective. So, and again, I I don't mean to draw this comparison constantly, but there are some parallels. So, in the case of psychedelic science and therapeutics, let's just say MDMA assisted psychotherapy for PTSD or psilocybin for, let's just say, end of life anxiety in terminal cancer patients. Both real research examples, and both are in phase three trials, or I have just completed phase three trials. They're very close to the kind of regulatory mm-hmm. finish line per se, and the, the data look very, very, very good. The tip of the spear that has ended up becoming incredibly strategically important for all of these, not just cultural narrative changes, but political changes and regulatory changes has been focusing on the veteran populations who suffer from PTSD because Mm. the veterans have political immunity in the sense that neither side, Republican nor Democrat, can come out and say, fuck the vets. It just, it it would be incredibly politically uh, uh, damaging. While still passing policies that essentially do that. 
Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. But nonetheless, like that has become a a key piece of the puzzle for allowing both sides to cooperate in any fashion. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I that's another reason why, although there are a lot of kind of anti-business, anti-capitalist folks on the left, but nonetheless, uh, I think most people recognize that capitalism is kind that's of the, the best right of the worst options that we have. I viewed some of the for-profit solutions as one bridge potentially. Are there other ways you think to get people to cooperate who are on opposite sides of the political spectrum? Are there other bridges or other tricks, anything? The one that comes to mind, because you use this example of veterans, is the immense risk that our dependence on fossil fuels places on our armed forces, our military. We are literally fighting wars for oil. We would not have to do that. We would, all those lives would be saved if we were just using sunshine and wind instead, or geothermal or whatever magical fusion thing you think will happen soon. Um, Well, hold on, don't put words (laughs) in my mouth. Renewable energies. And I think we don't understand that like, you know, military convoys, like so many of them are actually just transporting fuel for military operations. And that's what's getting bombed, right? Like it is putting our soldiers at risk, this dependence. It is creating wars in places where the weather patterns have changed so dramatically that there is famine that leads to unrest, that leads to violence, that leads to the United States getting involved, right? Like this is a national security issue. This is the safety of our military issue. And so in some senses, the military has the foresight to say, like, climate change is absolutely happening. How are we going to plan for this? They are taking steps to think through a lot of those practicalities. But this is, it is extremely disrespectful of our troops to be putting people in harm's way for reasons that don't exist. Like, we just do not have to live this way on this planet. And so I I wish that people would talk a little bit more about that. And it's the same for thinking about our naval bases, all on the coast, all at risk of sea level rise and storms. We have, you know, in Norfolk, Virginia, the big base there, access is cut off during high rains, the street floods because of sea level rise, right? And so that is absolutely a national security and safety issue. So there's a lot of stuff on that side that I wish more people would appreciate. If we're going to say support our troops, that means we have to deal with climate change. I think on the other side, just the joy of nature, like the ability to go for a hike, the ability to enjoy springtime, the ability to be outside in the summer and not melt, (laughs) the ability to go skiing, the ability to go scuba diving on a coral reef, all these pleasures that exist because nature has been relatively stable for a long time. Like I would love to go skiing this winter in driving distance of New York City, but not looking really good right now for snow. And so thinking about it from not just self-interest or financial gain, which there are plenty of arguments for that as well, but thinking about it from the things that we love to do in the world being all at risk. I mean, coffee, chocolate, wine, all of this is getting turned upside down by the changes in our climate that we can't grow these things as well anymore. Wildfires in Napa, obviously no good for many reasons, So I think we could be a bit more hedonistic about why 
we should do something to preserve our our Dionysian pleasures in the world. <laughs> yeah, if you don't want, I mean, I was I was watching a program on uh, wine production and how that has shifted, and how things are being grown in the UK that you know fifty years ago couldn't have been yeah. grown in the UK. And I don't know, somebody had mentioned this to me. I didn't fact check it, but that a lot of Lobster harvesting is moving to Canada due to climate change. Lobster used to be very common in Long Island Sound, no longer here, and starting to move out of Maine and even further north into Nova Scotia. Let me ask you a question about your episodes of the podcast, because I gave my best shot, but you've certainly listened to more episodes than I have. (laughs) Which episodes... Which episodes? I do listen to them all after, and I like do a game tape thing. I'm like, how could I have done that better? How could that joke have landed? You do? Oh, are you yeah, serious? Absolutely. Oh, all right. Everyone has well, a learning all, experience. All the better, since you're doing these post game analyses, to ask the question I wanted to ask, which is, which episodes worked the best, and which would you have done differently to have them work better? And by work, you're you're in a unique position to speak to working because you always had a call to action. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so, so I suppose another way to phrase this would be which episodes have had the biggest impacts and mm. which would you have done differently to have them have a greater impact? If you could maybe give an example of each. This is a question I would love to be able to answer quantitatively, but I can't. I don't think there's like robust tracking of tracking. like who's yeah. clicking what and taking what actions afterwards. I sort of like wanted there to be a whole dashboard built out and the whole thing. I, I did not get my wish. And I also had uh, myself taken off the, the email distribution for all incoming listener mail. Cause it was just too much. So oh, I yeah. don't even have yeah. sort of like a, a firm qualitative grasp after the first few episodes. But I think for a bunch of episodes, we had the same call to action, which was call your members of Congress because this is our chance to pass federal climate policy through the the combination of the infrastructure bill, which did pass and had some climate measures in it, and the Build Back Better plan, which has like way more in terms of the energy transition, supporting the shift to electric cars, all sorts of, you know, infrastructure and federal related things that we need to see happen. We encourage people to call their members of Congress and say, like, we actually, I support this. I think we should have good climate policy in America. I think we should have a civilian climate core that puts Americans to work restoring and protecting our ecosystems and building physically this transition. I think we should have offshore wind energy in this country. We've got a lot of ocean. We've got a lot of wind. And, and you know, I think we should have 100% clean electricity by 2035, which is the goal. We can get there, but we got to get it going. And so encouraging people, offering specific talking points, this is not partisan. This is just like, we need the federal government to do its part in jumpstarting this transition, just as they did with innovating the internet or funding Tesla to get started. The government funds a lot of really important early stage stuff in R&D and jumpstarts it. So... We had a ton of people calling in, which matters because very few people actually pick up the phone and call their representatives. I'm super, super wussy about it for some reason. Even though I know you can call after hours and just leave a voicemail, I still get like really nervous. But because so few people call, your call has outsized weight. They have to log every call from their constituents. 
if they get 10 calls on anything, they're like, what is our position on this? And they have to develop one. They have to be able to answer to people who elected them. They assume 10 people didn't call who feel the same way. So your voice actually does have a lot of power in that context. And so seeing people feel like that actually mattered is a way to leverage, you know, leverage your power as a citizen. And then we also had a lot of people after the electric car episode that were like, I bought an electric car because that episode was great. (laughs) So it sort of like spans the gamut or people like, I'm eating so much more kelp now. But I think having this sort of call to action at the end of every episode, whether it's like try out some seaweed recipes or call your senator, hopefully there's sort of something for everyone. All right. I want to mention a couple of things and then jump into some more You've got like a smirk with that intro that I'm like, what are you going to mention? My smirk. I always have a smirk. This is why why half the internet hates me, I'm convinced, is I just have a very punchable face. Like People are like, what's that fucking smirk about? And I can't erase it. (laughs) Thank you. It could be be the, uh, you know, Lenin, not as in John Lennon, but as in the, uh, yeah, the sort of Russian propaganda. um, Communist leader. Yeah. The uh, the American History X look that I can't seem to avoid uh, might be the problem. But a couple of things I want to mention just for people listening. First is, if you want to see some of the coolest companies I've come across anywhere, go to Lower Carbon Capital. This is Chris Saka and team. You will see some of the craziest, coolest things you can possibly imagine. Just check that out. Another is, to echo what, what you just said, the calls really matter. I, I have... Mm-hmm. Uh, it interviewed Arnold Schwarzenegger on the podcast uh, once, maybe twice, and I've gotten to know his team, and I've gotten to know a no- number of other lawmakers. And precisely as you said, because so few people call, if you get a few dozen people to call or a few hundred people to call, they will pay attention. And also, the question I have for you is about cultural pressure and getting to some type of tipping point with respect to elected officials. And here's Mm -hmm. the phrasing of the question. I think expecting politicians to do anything that does not assist them in getting elected or reelected is probably naive. In the same way that to expect most public company CEOs to plan 20 years out is unrealistic if they're being rewarded based on quarterly results. Or say, take a 1% loss to save the planet. Right. Well, so, right. So I think, I think, I think just people respond to incentives. So, so my question for you is what do you think it will take? Are there kind of next actions that I or other people could be thinking about in the next few years, within the next few years that could help shift that tide to the point that politicians actually need to think about and take positions yeah. Uh, more aggressive positions. Now, sadly, it could be in the opposite direction also. But what can we do to make it matter more? We need to protect voting rights. The majority of Americans understand that climate change is a massive problem. It's only 9% of Americans who are full-blown climate science deniers. Okay. It is. We have the largest percentage of Americans ever now who are like deeply alarmed about the climate crisis. It's about a third. It's not about getting, and you know, and then there's like alarm, there's concerned, there's like all these different levels, but it's like the vast majority of Americans are like, holy shit, climate change, what are we going to do? And so it's not that we don't have the constituency for it. It's that, have you seen the shape of these ridiculous congressional districts 
the way that they're gerrymandered, that they don't actually reflect communities, that they're just designed to elect a specific party, the voter registration laws, the way they're purging the voter rolls, the way they're requiring all these more forms of identification. So passing the Voting Rights Act, passing voter protections more generally, is actually a really important step because our voices can't be heard as citizens if we can't elect the people who share our views because the system is so skewed. And so that is something people, I think, don't think about enough, that like saving the structure of our democracy of representative democracy, of the electoral process is actually really critical because we already do have the numbers, but we're losing because of that. And one of the organizations that I'm completely enamored with that is doing work along these lines is called the Environmental Voter Project. And what they've identified is that there are 10 million, 16 million sometimes environmentalists, self-described who have, you know, environment as their number one issue, who are already registered to vote and who do not go to the polls. That is the lowest hanging fruit, right? Already registered, already care, need to get them out to vote. And so I volunteer with that organization and serve on their advisory board because we know how close these elections are. They're all like 1%, like a few hundred people in some cases. So getting people to actually go and use their right to vote is super critical. So those are the things that are on my mind now because they're also like we're coming up on midterm elections and making sure that we make it clear to politicians that we actually we want you to have a good climate policy platform. We need you to protect your constituents in every state. We're dealing with really wild, extreme weather events from landslides to wildfires, to floods, to droughts, to hurricanes, to tornadoes out of nowhere, to fire tornadoes. I mean, it's crazy. Um, And so this is not a partisan issue. This is about doing your job and protecting your constituents. But I hear you that, like, if they don't feel that their re-election is at risk, it doesn't matter. And so we need to protect voting rights. Um, And we also need to think about how elections are funded. The Citizens United Supreme Court case that allowed corporations to fund elections really weakened our democracy dramatically. So like, I know it's sort of welcome, but like overturn Citizens United would be like a great step to climate policy in America because we wouldn't have the Chamber of Commerce and all of these fossil fuel companies and pipeline companies able to literally pay for elections, which is super dangerous. I can't compete with that. So I think just safeguarding our electoral process on the campaign finance side and on the voting rights side are really key. We will add links to the show notes for everybody with everything that we're talking about, including those organizations. Now, when I hear that, it sounds overwhelmingly complex. Like there is Mm. next to nothing that I could do in that sphere as someone who also is, I don't want to say politically illiterate, but- well, you tell me then. Let's do a deeper dive then. So like what could someone who is has an allergic reaction to politics still do to assist in something like Well, this? I don't know how to deal with your allergy per se. <laughs> I don't know, take an antihistamine and just fucking jump in. <laughs> I think it comes down to like choosing the thing that you care about, right? Like we can't care about everything. And that's why like yep. environmental voter project for me is like easy. Let's get people who already care are already registered to vote to get to the polls. I can do that. I can host phone banks. You could host a phone bank with me. Wouldn't that be a blast? 
you can tell people to volunteer. You just call your neighbors and be like, hey, we need you to vote, right? Like pick the person with the good climate platform. It'll be very clear probably which person that is. And I think to think about local elections too, often, you know, at the presidential level or at the Senate level, it's a very different calculus for people who feel very aligned with a particular political party. But at, when it comes to city council, which is where your transit and waste management and recycling and composting and bike lane and building code and whatever decisions are getting made in your city governments, you can focus on those elections. It doesn't have to feel so loaded and partisan. It can feel like we need to get things right where I live. I want to be a part of that. And also, I will say local elections, you can support candidates and your dollars go way further. Because in a presidential or Senate election, you're talking like millions, tens of millions of dollars. Local elections, often the entire budget for a campaign is like 10 grand. And so I've hosted fundraisers where we've been able to like double the campaign budget of these local candidates to help them get their ideas and their platforms out so that more people will know what they stand for. To me, it makes it feel a lot more both possible and concrete to think about local elections. And there's an organization called Lead Locally that focuses on local candidates with great climate platforms. So thinking about like, who's running your port authority? Who's running your railroad commission? Who's running your school board? What are our kids getting taught about how we deal with these challenges? All of those positions really matter too, because it's at the local level that these policies and solutions are often getting implemented. Like that's where the rubber meets the road. All right, I'm going to do a much deeper dive. I'll do some homework. I'll do some homework, and uh, we'll have some beers and talk about it. Okay. Uh, the the. Do you drink beer? Place I want to... So much gluten. No, I Full don't. Full of pesticides. Wheat we, is like we, one we of were, the highest we, pesticide we, crops. You know, we, glyphosate super <laughs> dangerous for your You sperm mentioned counts. beer before we got started. You're the one who started this whole thing. I like tequila, tequila and gin. Okay, you can have tequila. Uh, all all right. of mezcal will like meet on the internet. You know, we could have some Sotol. That's a that's a whole separate thing. It's kind of like a mixture. It's a, anyway, we'll get into it another that time. But the, you may all taste it. <laughs> all right. So the 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 question that I want to ask you is related to a term I brought up earlier, which I think about. It's not the way that everyone thinks about these things, but the minimum effective dose. And what I mean by that is, what are some small things that people can do that don't require sacrifices and they may be things they're not even aware have the magnitude of impact that they do. And one I wanted to give as an example, right? Because I think sometimes people who have causes try to shame the hell out of people and mm -hmm. ask them to change all of their behaviors and it just doesn't work, right? Yeah. So I'm always looking for the gateway drug. Like what is something really small that won't get a lot of pushback for most people? And I thought we would start with an example which is on the FAQ at your website, the FAQ, shrimp. Could you <laughs> yeah. talk about shrimp, please? Because this is a great example. Yeah. I will say I appreciate the need for people to have a place to start, but I also object to the framing that there's the way people often ask me the question, which is like, what's one simple thing I can do to like save the planet? And I'm like, mm, maybe like what's the first thing you can do? So I think... Okay, shrimp. Here's the rundown. Let me let me just say one thing before we move on, yeah. because I know you got shrimp covered with your your eyes closed. Um, I feel like if people believe 
that they are just getting the first homework assignment of a never ending list. It doesn't have, have to really be homework. I'm just saying, if that's the way it's framed, if they're like one little thing isn't good enough, they'll be like, you know what? Then I'm out. Like yeah. if, if I don't, if this is Pandora's box that is, and I'm never going to get positive reinforcement, then I'm just not going to do anything because why Who would said I? said you right? weren't getting positive reinforcement? All right. I will all right. be so proud of you when you do that one thing. <laughs> Imagine what happens right. when you do 10 things, how proud of you I will be. <laughs> Um, I think right. this, so I, I get it. It's just like, it's this human behavior thing. And I, I've, I've definitely like grumbled that if I wanted to be useful, I should have gotten a degree in psychology because this is all about how people make decisions and what motivates people. And like, I'm not an expert in that, but I know that like, if we each do one little thing, we will not solve the entire climate crisis and like prevent apocalypse. Yeah, I agree. Right. And so figuring out like, that's why the Venn diagram is like, what brings you joy? Like do that, do it more than once, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm here for the, the delights and the positive reinforcement. And I would say that one way to make that happen is to not do it alone. Like do yeah. this with your homies, like do this with your family, do this with your friends, do this with your group texts, like find a thing that you all enjoy doing. Um, and there's a very cool website that Patagonia made, full disclosure, I'm on their board, that's called Action Works, And it's what they call skill-based volunteering. And so you can go to the website and search like buy the things that you're good at. Like I'm good at video editing. Okay, great. This nonprofit needs help making a video about installing bike lanes in the community um, or you're good at event planning and you're like, oh, this nonprofit's doing a thing. Like I could volunteer and help them do that. Or, oh, this other group needs help with their accounting. Like they just don't have that expertise in house and you're an accountant. You can help with that. So I think things like that, that feel like specifically useful can often keep us going and you're contributing to something that's bigger. And maybe you like working with those people. Maybe they're delightful. <laughs> And and then we have also things like shrimp, which is for yeah. me, I will say, it's not just one simple thing and then you're done. Yeah. It's a way to trick people into thinking more about these things. Yeah. That's it, right? And then you've opened the the door, so to speak. So shrimp, I'll just give my like personal quick take. I read this today and I was like, I was like, holy <laughs> shit, my friend talked. I remember a friend talking about this. And the fact yeah. of the matter is like, you know, I, I have shrimp, but it's like, I don't need shrimp. I don't like them that much. It's easy for me to avoid in the same way that I saw like my octopus teacher. And I was like, I don't need to eat octopus. Even though I lived in Japan and everything like, I don't need octopus. You need them alive in the ocean being charming and weird. Yeah. So shrimp, I keep stumbling. uh, I keep keep interfering. Please tell us about shrimp. shrimp. If there's one seafood you should probably stop eating, it is the most popular seafood in America, which is shrimp. Because there's there's basically like two ways that it gets to your plate, and they're both horrible. There's very minor exceptions, but you'll know if you're part of the exception because you will be paying a lot of money <laughs> for these very special shrimp. But in general, shrimp either comes from the wild ocean, in which case that there's a, a net that's dragged along the seafloor. And shrimp are pretty tiny, so it's a pretty fine mesh net, so it's catching like everything else that's there and sort of bulldozing the the seafloor habitat and all of that stuff that they pull up most of it just is made sometimes it's like 10 percent shrimp and so the rest is often thrown back dead or dies because it's coming up from such depth that it basically gets it gets decompression sickness all these fish 
And so the, the waste associated with that type of fishing is enormous. The habitat damage is really significant. And also often the labor practices on those boats are truly horrific. And then on the flip side, you can farm shrimp, aquaculture in, in coastal ponds. And to do that, which is mostly happening in Southeast Asia, they're, they're bulldozing the mangroves, which are ecosystems that absorb a lot of carbon and protect the shorelines from things like tsunamis. After that big tsunami, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, places that had intact mangroves actually did much better than places that didn't have a natural barrier left. And so you're bulldozing this ecosystem, which is also the habitat for all the juvenile fish that you would otherwise be catching offshore. It's their nursery. And you're putting in these high-density ponds of shrimp and you're feeding them all this food and all the shrimp are pooping and then they're all getting diseases and you're putting antibiotics and like things to kill lice and all these chemicals and it's polluting the local environment and I don't really want to eat shrimp that's grown that way and then often in the processing side of things enslaved people are used to peel those shrimp if you get like pre-peeled frozen shrimp from Southeast Asia I would not feel good about eating that for people or the planet so that's why I'm like, eh, let's just stop with the shrimp. Unless it's like Oregon trap caught pink shrimp or like recirculating aquaculture Florida shrimp, right? Like, but those are sort of fancy and you'll know if that's what you're getting. I know it's a bummer, shrimp cocktail, like very iconic, but, but they're also kind so of like easy eating to order bugs. Something else. Like, yeah, let's move past it. I know eating bugs is cool and high protein and low impact and whatever, but. Not really you know, as someone who has eaten a fair number of crickets, I, I take <laughs> offense. Although, interestingly enough, if someone has a shellfish allergy, they should also not eat any insect-based proteins because the allergy Noted. is the same. So if you can't eat shrimp, don't, don't eat too many arthropods elsewhere. Let me ask you, and we're going to wrap up in a few minutes. I know this has gone uh, plenty long, so thank you very much for the I time. I look forward but, to you um, editing it down to its essence. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Probably won't do too much editing. I'm no, I'm, I'm no Gimlet. Well, Dr. Johnson, do you go by Dr. Johnson? <laughs> um, Is it Dr. Elizabeth Johnson? Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, I know would be the full. Yeah, Dr. Johnson, occasionally. I mean, you know, sometimes a little gravitas doesn't hurt when you're trying to get your opinions heard. <laughs> but you may call so, me Ayana. Oh, thank you, Ayana. Beautiful flower. Is that what your name means? Yeah. It does, which was very stressful for me for a while because I was like, well, that's a lot of pressure. But it turns out there's like a lot of different flowers <laughs> and they're all beautiful and it's not this sort of singular thing. <laughs> so now I'm cool with it. It's a great name. So we could we could talk for many, many more hours. There are all sorts of things I'd love to ask you about. We talked a bit about offshore renewable energy, marine ecosystems, algae biofuel. We didn't really get into regenerative ocean farming. We spoke about a little bit, mm -hmm. but we're already at two hours, roughly. I don't want to chew up your entire day. What would you like to, before we close up, mention, if anything, any requests of the audience, anything you'd like to point people to, mm. any complaints about the podcast you'd like to lodge publicly, anything at all? This is like a question I should have an answer to, huh? <laughs> I mean, I sort of mentioned m much of the stuff, right? Like environmental voter project, taking your role as a citizen seriously, thinking about Patagonia's action works to think about ways that you can volunteer using your specific skills, there's also a website called Climate Base. If you are inspired to look for a job more directly in the climate sector, that's a, 
a great list of job announcements there at climatebase.org. Obviously, if folks are curious about all these podcast episodes, we're, we're mentioning How to Save a Planet on Spotify. I miss that crew all the time. They are cranking them out and explaining stuff and, and telling us every week what we should do to help. And I guess I would say for those who have trouble seeing where they might fit into climate solutions, I know this is like kind of lame, but I would recommend the book that I co-edited with Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, which is called All We Can Save. And the subtitle is Truth, Courage and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. So it's very forward looking and it'll give you these examples of all these different ways that people have creatively found to be a part of this transformation that we need to have. And there's some comics and poems and stuff in there too. So it's a sort of works on whatever level you want to approach it with on a given day. And that I found really interesting to help to curate because I really see it as like 40 essays are 40 different doors into how we can participate in climate solutions. It's not just solar panels and electric cars, although I like both of those things. There's a lot more to this. And what I'm doing next, which I would say, I guess, like, keep your eye out, is I'm going to stop doing interviews on other people's podcasts and write the book that I was supposed to write last year, which is tentatively titled, What If We Get It Right? And it's entirely focused on talking about the futures that we could have if we charge ahead with all these solutions that we have at our fingertips. So this visions of climate futurism. And I think that question is so powerful. Like, what if we get it right? Like, what if we do what we're supposed to do? Like, show me that it's worth the effort because it is effort and change is hard. And like humans are not often that into change. And so thinking about it through that lens, I find to be really energizing. Like, what if we get it right, you guys? Like, wouldn't that be great? Like, don't you want to be a part of that? And so I'll be doing interviews as a big part of that book. And I'm collaborating with artists. I have this very cool fellowship through the Headland Center for the Arts to have artists help to visualize some of the themes that I'm working with. And so I would just encourage everyone to think about that question. What is the future that we want? And how can you be part of shaping that? as opposed to fighting the past or like the bad guys or against fossil fuels or whatever. Like, what are you for? What do you want to see more of? That is an excellent title. I'm looking forward to that. That's a great title. Also, you know, you know good titles 20, are helpful. 2023, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, people can learn more about All We Can Save at allwecansave.earth. Pretty good URL, Yeah. That is a that is a great URL. They can find you on Twitter and Instagram at Ayana Eliza, mm -hmm. as in Elizabeth. And they can find you on your website, ayanaelizabeth.com. There's urbanoceanlab.org. And then as I mentioned, all we can save dot earth. How much fun. This has been great. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't. Thanks so too much for having me. Punishing and your and boring. Sturdy questions. <laughs> Thank you. I'm all about sturdy questions. Uh, and anything else you would like to add? Step it up, Tim. We need you. <laughs> I'm working on it, and I am going to be and I am going to be stepping it up. 
Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Johnson. You can drunk text and, me if you need some hot climate action solution oh tips. Oh boy, oh boy. Yeah, drunk texting. <laughs> that is another. If you're going to ask what superpower did I get from my parents, it might be drunk texting. That's and, not to be underrated. That that sort of like, you know, that clarity. It has that its place. truth telling, has, you know? That messy, messy truth telling. <laughs> the mess of reality that we all navigate. Sometimes you need a drunk text or two. And for everybody listening, thank you for tuning in. You can find the show notes, links to everything that we have discussed and more at tim.blog slash podcast. And until next time, thank you for tuning in. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just one more thing before you take off, and that is Five Bullet Friday. Would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little fun before the weekend? Between one and a half and two million people subscribe to my free newsletter, my super short newsletter called Five Bullet Friday. Easy to sign up, easy to cancel. It is basically a half page that I send out every Friday to share the coolest things I've found or discovered or have started exploring over that week. It's kind of like my diary of cool things. It often includes articles I'm reading, books I'm reading, albums perhaps, gadgets, gizmos, all sorts of tech tricks and so on that get sent to me by my friends, including a lot of podcast guests. And these strange esoteric things end up in my field and then I test them and then I share them with you. So if that sounds fun, again, it's very short, a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend, something to think about. If you'd like to try it out, just go to tim.blog slash Friday. Type that into your browser, tim.blog slash Friday. Drop in your email and you'll get the very next one. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. I get asked all the time what I would take if I could only take one supplement. I've been asked this for years. The answer is invariably AG1 by Athletic Greens. I view it as all-in-one nutritional insurance. So you can cover your bases. If you're traveling, if you're just busy, if you're not sure if your meals are where they should be, it covers your bases. I've recommended it since the four-hour body, which was, God, eons ago, 2010, and I did not get paid to do so. With approximately 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, you'll be hard-pressed to find a more nutrient-dense formula on the market. It has a multivitamin, multimineral greens complex, probiotics and prebiotics for gut health, an immunity formula, digestive enzymes, and adaptogens. You get the idea. It is very, very comprehensive. And I do my best, of course, to focus on nutrient-dense, proper meals, but sometimes you're busy, sometimes you're traveling, sometimes you just want to make sure that you are getting what you need. AG1 makes it easy to get a lot of nutrition when whole foods aren't readily available. It's also NSF certified for sport, making it safe for competitive athletes, as what's on the label is in the powder. It's the ultimate all-in-one nutritional supplement bundle in one easy scoop. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving my audience a special offer on top of their all-in-one formula, which is a free vitamin D supplement and five free travel packs with your first subscription purchase. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D. I found that true for myself, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure. So adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great option for additional immune support. Support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash Tim. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Peak Tea. That's P-I-Q-U-E. I have 
had so much tea in my life. I've been to China, I've lived in China, in Japan, I've done tea tours, I drink a lot of tea. And 10 years plus of physical experimentation and tracking has shown me many things, chief among them that gut health is critical to just about everything, and you'll see where tea is going to tie into this. It affects immune function, weight management, mental performance, emotional health, you name it. I've been drinking fermented poo air tea specifically pretty much every day for years now. Poo air tea delivers more polyphenols and probiotics than you can shake a stick at. It's like providing the optimal fertilizer to your microbiome. The problem with good poo air is that it's hard to source. It's hard to find real poo air that hasn't been exposed to pesticides and other nasties, which is super common. That's why Peak's fermented puer tea crystals have become my daily go-to. It's so simple. They have so many benefits that I'm gonna get into, and I first learned about them through my friends, Dr. Peter Atia and Kevin Rose. Peak crystals are cold extracted using only wild harvested leaves from 250-year-old tea trees. I often kickstart my mornings with their puer green tea, their puer black tea, and I alternate between the two. The rich earthy flavor of the black specifically is amazing. It's very, very, it's like a, a, a delicious barnyard. <laughs> very peaty if you like whiskey and stuff like that. They triple toxin screen all of their products for heavy metals, pesticides, and toxic mold contaminants commonly found in tea. There's also zero prep or brewing required as the crystals dissolve in seconds. So you can just drop it into your hot tea or I also make iced tea and that saves a ton of time and hassle. So Peak is offering 15% off their Puer teas for the very first time, exclusive to you, my listeners. This is a sweet offer. Simply visit peaktea.com slash Tim. That's P-I-Q-U-E-T-E-A dot com forward slash Tim. This promotion is only available to listeners of this podcast. That's peaktea.com forward slash Tim. The discount is automatically applied when you use that URL. You also have a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so your purchase is risk-free. One more time, check it out, Peak. T, that's P-I-Q-U-E-T-E-A dot com slash Tim. 